Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out community and join a movement group. Maybe it means supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Um, so we're going to be in week seven, like like Tyler said, of our uh, series through the book of Mark. And boy, I, I don't know about you, but I've been loving uh, going through this series. I'm learning so much, and I hope that you're uh, learning a lot too. And, and, and like Tyler said, we're finishing our ninth week on Thanksgiving, and then we're going to go into our Christmas series, a couple other series. We're going to pick up back in the spring. We're going to finish out the book with Mark's Easter account on Easter in April. But uh, before we go any further, I just want to invite you to turn to page 766 on those Bibles uh, underneath your seats. It's going to be Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 14 through 29. And I've actually, uh, it's going to be a little different than the Bibles underneath your seats. Uh, uh, we're going to be in the New International Version this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to hop right in. Uh, I just thought that this uh, translation was a little bit more helpful for our purposes uh, this morning. So Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, if you are there, Mark tells us this. King Herod, we're going to talk about which one that is, heard about this. What is this? Look at verse 13. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So, so uh, Herod is hearing about the ministry that is happening through the person of Jesus and outflowing through his disciples. So he hears about this. For Jesus' name had become well known, and some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work with him. Others said, he is Elijah. And others still claimed he is a prophet like the one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Okay, oh, now this is gonna be a little bit confusing. He just said that, and now we're going into a flashback. Uh, Mark sets this up almost like a flashback into the story of John the Baptist beheading now, okay? So it says this, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay, um, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On, birth, on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything that you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with oath, whatever you ask, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The mother being Herodias, the head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with her request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist. Not just the head of John the Baptist, but on a platter. And the king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths, 
And his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body, and he laid it in a tomb. (laughs) This week, uh, I was supposed to preach on the feeding of the 5,000. And when I told Mark that I felt like the Lord had put on my heart to teach the beheading of John the Baptist, you can imagine what his response was. Well, there's not really a whole lot of songs that we could worship to that correlate with the beheading of John the Baptist. And I've even felt unbelievable spiritual attack over what this actually means for us today this week. I've never been so behind on a message I've never had so many things just come up this week. And then we sang Jaira. And I began to cry back there. Because I have nothing to give you this morning. But what he has provided. And I just feel from the Lord that you need to know that. That whatever comes out of my mouth this morning, while I've prepared what meager things I can give to you, that it is all God. It is all his glory. And we have some of those weeks sometimes, right, where God provides. And I, hopefully this morning you're going to see the provision of God in even one of the most tr- just traumatic and horrific events in the Bible. And, you know, as we've been walking through Mark, we've talked about how intentional Mark is with how he writes his gospel. In fact, all of the gospel writers do this because they're left with limited words. The gospel writer John tells us if all of the books in the whole world contained the stories of Jesus, there still wouldn't be enough books to contain them. And Mark's gospel only has 16 chapters, and that means that he's written everything with intention. And so that means that we actually need to look at the broader context of Mark chapter 6 if we're going to understand this specific passage. If you were to look at verses 1 through 6, you would see Jesus entering his hometown, the town that he grew up in, Nazareth. And not only do they not welcome him, but they completely reject him. His hometown. They say, we know this guy. We know his dad We know his mom, we know his brothers, isn't this Jesus the carpenter? And they say, get out, we don't want you. And then if you were to look at the middle of chapter six, you would see Jesus out of this rejection preparing his disciples to go out and to minister after him. And he prepares them for rejection as well. He says this in verse 11, but if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust from your feet. What's Jesus' thesis statement? If you are going to follow the rejected king of the universe, you better be prepared to be rejected yourself. And when you get to our passage, you're wondering, like, what is going on? But if you look at the entirety of chapter 6, you get it, because here's the chief prophet of the New Testament, John the Baptist, the godliest man that has ever lived, other than Jesus, according to Jesus himself. And they're going full cancel culture on this guy. They're not only throwing him into prison, but they're going to take his head. Just for speaking truth to power. And it's all a signal to the disciples, and it's a signal to us that if you follow the rejected king, Jesus, you may be rejected at times in your life as well. 
And the reason for this rejection is that the world operates on a whole different set of principles than the kingdom of God. And can I just encourage you this morning? I think this message should be not discouraging, but encouraging. Because I think the way that we go through life and our expectations for it are directly correlated to the way we feel about how good or bad life is going. And if we have the proper expectations... At least then we will know that when we face trials or persecution, that it's nothing out of the ordinary. There will be times where you will not be liked by friends, family, and by the world at large if you stand on the truth of the word of God. And Mark is trying to make it crystal clear that if you follow the rejected king, you may be rejected yourself. All right, so we got to start with Herod this morning. We're going to take a good look at Herod. I I learned a lot of interesting things about Herod this week, and I would guess that most of us know very little about Herod, but what you need to know is that Herod's shadow casts its huge reflection over the entire New Testament. Who is King Herod? Well, there's at least four King Herods mentioned in the New Testament, and our operations coordinator, she's incredibly gifted, helped create a graph for us this morning so we could kind of figure this out. All right, look at this. This is only a portion of his family. It's way more messed up than this. We condensed it for this message alone. So the first Herod that we hear about in the New Testament is Herod the Great. Herod the Great tries to kill baby Jesus. The Herod in our story is Herod Antipas. He's one of Malthus's four sons, but King Herod had 10 wives. One of his wives was Cleopatra. You know Cleopatra. You've learned about her, right? And Herod Antipas marries Herodias. Who's Herodias? Herodias was not only his niece, because Herodias was Herod Aristobulus' daughter, But then Herod Philip, his other brother, married Herodias. And then in our story, you guys, are you confused yet? Like, I'm confused. And then Herod Antipas, which is the Herod in our story, ends up marrying Herodias after she divorces Herod Philip. Now you can see why John the Baptist is going, "Uh uh-uh. Okay? Now, Salome, we're going to get into that later. But here's kind of the backdrop of Herod's Family. Now, Herod comes into the story about 40 BC, and Herod's an Edomite. What does that mean? It means that he's Jewish. And Herod the Great, this is the Herod the Great that I'm talking about, because they understand the son, you got to understand the daddy, because the son doesn't fall too far from the dad's tree. So Herod the Great comes onto our scene about 40 BC. He is a Jew, and his whole goal is that he wants the Jewish people to see him as the Messiah to see him as God. But he's caught between two tsunamis. Hang with me. We got some chugging to do. He's got Rome, and he's got to please Rome, so he taxes the heck out of his own people. Rome's got all the nicest luxuries, the construction, everything that is booming in that world right now is from Rome. But then he's caught between the Jewish people too, and he tries to please them. So he builds the world's greatest temple at that time for this Jewish people. He brings prosperity to the region. And he does this all through ruthlessness. I mean, this guy is ruthless. But through his brilliant economic prowess, he becomes the richest man in the world. And scholars will say that if 
all of the things that Herod built today were still standing or a little bit of them were standing. Four of them would knock out four of the top wonders of the world. I've been to Israel. There's this place called Masada. Masada is literally a mountain that he used slave labor to construct a three-tier palace. He's got 11 of them. Six are just pleasure palaces. Five are fortresses. And he's building city after city after city after city with bathhouses and luxuries and all these things. And so then if you read in your Bibles and you come across these people named Herodians, Herodians are Jewish people that they've got one foot in this beautiful, wealthy, prosperous Roman world, and they've got one foot in their Jewish identity. They love Herod. They love what he's done. They love what he's doing. These are the Christers of today, right? They come to church on Christmas and Easter. They, they want to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on their life, but they don't want to go all in. Those are the Herodians. Okay, and what I want us to see is that Herod Antipas doesn't fall far from the tree. Mark, in verse one, he calls him a king, but this is actually tongue-in-cheek because when Herod dies, when Jesus is at a very young age, he parcels out his kingdom to his sons. And so while Herod Antipas wants you to think that he's king, he's actually not, even though he's still powerful. He's a tetrarch of Galilee. The region of Galilee is his domain. And he's just as egotistical, just as narcissistic as his dad. But nonetheless, he's powerful, and he begins his own construction project in the region of Galilee. And he builds his crown jewel, which is called Tiberius. It's got all of the luxuries of a Roman city, public bathhouses, stadiums, theaters, a royal palace, sex, culture, sport, money, all of the things that wealth bring are just flourishing in the city of Tiberias. And you're wondering, why am I telling you all of these things? Because as Tiberias is being built in the region of Galilee, three miles away, a young boy named Jesus is growing up in the town of Nazareth. And by the time that we get to today's text, Jesus is a grown man. Now, what do we know about Galilee? What do we know about the gospel of Mark? 90% of Jesus's ministry happens in the region of Galilee. Do you feel the tension of the worlds colliding right now? Like this is all happening under the megalomaniac Herod's nose. And I think we need to ask ourselves, like, is this a coincidence or is God trying to tell us something? Because here you've got Jesus and his kingdom and Herod and his kingdom side by side. And I don't know about you, but I find the contrast absolutely compelling. One is loved by the world, king of it. The other is rejected by it. One lives up there with the wealthy in the palace. One lives down there with the poor and the destitute. One uses slaves to build his kingdom. The other says, I have become a slave to those in my kingdom. The contrast couldn't be any bigger. And through all of this, the backdrop for our text is set for today. Do you guys feel that? I need you to feel it. Because now we see the real tragedy of this story, and it's not for John, it's for Herod. 
Because read verse 17, it says, Herod himself had given orders for John to be arrested. He had him bound, he had put him in prison. He did this not or because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Can we uh, pull up that chart again? So we've already talked about this. Herod is, it's fine if uh, we don't have it. Um, <laughs> Herod is now married to his niece, which is also his former sister-in-law. This is in our Bibles. And I think we need to pause here because there's so many people with COVID and whatever and presidents and what, there are so many Christians that are like, the world is ending and Jesus is coming back soon. And I sure hope so. That would be awesome. But don't get your hopes up because this was happening when Jesus was walking on the earth. You guys, you know what I mean? Like, man, this world's going to, a, going to hell in a handbasket. And I think it's because as Americans, we're so used to peace and prosperity that we don't recognize that for the kingdom of God, for the majority of people in the kingdom of God, for the entire history of the kingdom of God, they've lived under this type of rule, this type of oppression. And so now you've got this incestuous relationship at the top of the social strata in the pyramid that is the kingdom of Herod. And Billy Graham comes onto the scene and he walks right into the Oval Office and he says, enough. Go back to your roots. You are the Jewish king. Repent. Be about the kingdom of God. He speaks truth to the sexual sin that is in Herod's life. And Herodias, his wife, is so offended, so humiliated by John speaking truth to power that she's trying to do cancel culture to this guy on a whole nother level. She wants his head. And this is where we pause. Because if you say racism is real and that there's real differences in our society and that we should care about injustice and we should care about the marginalized, you might get lambasted by the right. And if you say that God cares about every single life, including every unborn child in this country that is being holocausted right now, you might get lambasted by the left. And if you say that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way, you might be called a closed-minded bigot. And if you say that sex is holy, that pornography is demonic, that there are only two genders and that God designed them to be in monogamous relationships for the rest of their life, you may be laughed at and you might not have your physical head taken off in our culture, but you'll have your head taken off if you stand on the word of God and its truths. And if you really look into scripture and you see the life that Jesus lives and you see the things that he teaches, it doesn't fit into any political category of today. You will be rejected if you stand on the truths of scripture. The number one pressure that I face as a pastor from people that either want to leave our church or want to walk away from their faith is I want to see you move from your convictions. I want to see you move off the word of God. I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that part of the Bible. It doesn't suit my needs. Well, guess what? If you do that, God's not God anymore. You are God, and you have a God of your own making. And John says no. And it ticks Herodias off so much that she wants to kill him. And we better be ready for this. 
Maybe not physical injury, but people will come for you. And so let's get back to the story, prepare to be rejected if you follow the rejected king. Look at verse 20. Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. What? What is going on here? Herod likes John. He likes the guy who's publicly calling him out. He's drawn to John. He even protects John. Why? Because the more you think about it, the more that you see. I think Herod is drawn to John because he sees a man that is so other than him, so unlike him. Herod is godless. He's depraved. His whole life is a lie based on a lie that even though he wasn't really king, that he was king in his own man, he acted like one. I gain life by the things that I have, by controlling things, by building things, by being my own Lord. But as a king, his life may look kingly on the outside, but he was deeply distressed and disturbed on the inside. And this is how it goes with the Herods of the world. You may have everything that the world says you need to have to be powerful, to be prosperous, to be beautiful. And you may feel just like Herod on the inside. When you see someone that has conviction, that lives a certain way, you feel empty in comparison to them. See, for Herod, authority and power was being a person of means in the world, but not for John. John, in verse 20, it says that Herod sees him as a holy and righteous man, a man of conviction. And here is the biggest irony in the story. Who fears who? It says, here is John in chains before the king, fearless before this cruel megalomaniac. And here is Herod, the man who stands free, who has the power over John's life, and he's afraid of John. And here's a huge takeaway. Real authority is not derived from position or palaces or political power, nor is it what you possess or achieve or accomplish, how big your house is, what your neighbors think of you, how you fit into this world, how many followers you have, how many likes you get, what clothes you wear. Real authority comes from who you are from having a character that looks like Jesus, from living a holy and right life. Does your life possess that kind of authority? Are you holy and right with God? Men, do you know that your authority comes not through your possessions or your accomplishments or control? but through being holy and right. Women, do you know that the authority of your life doesn't come from your exterior beauty, but from your interior character and love for Jesus? College kids, high school kids, anyone that struggles with how other people perceive them on the outside, do you know that the real authority in your life doesn't come from how you posture yourself online? but who you are at your house at 10 p.m. on a Friday. 
Because the way the world does authority is the Herod way. But if you live the way of the kingdom of God, you will be put in positions of rejection by the culture, rejection by friends, rejection even at times by your family. Because the Herod way of authority, you know what it says? Your life is for me. But you know what Jesus says? My life, it's for you. And this sounds great. But it's not that easy. And I was so convicted this week. This, this, this rubs so hard up against my life at times. I was doing premarital counseling last week and I had this opportunity every once in a while to counsel couples and this couple came into my office to be counseled. It's, it's a cosmic joke that God would give me the opportunity to counsel other people in their marriage. Let me first say that because I got a lot of things I got to work on. But praise God that we have the Bible. And so that's what we try to do. We try to go all the way back to the Bible and we try to say, don't listen to what Trigg's got to say. Let's look at what the, uh, the word of God's got to say. So this couple comes in and I can tell through the first few minutes of our conversations that maybe they're not really following Jesus. And so I asked him, I said, you know, why are you guys here? Why are you here? Why are you getting counsel from a pastor? And they said, well, you know, we want our kids to kind of grow up in the church. We want them to have like good morals, but we don't really want them to be radical. And I said, oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by radical? I said, well, we all know that blank, blank, blank. And then they went on this long list of things that we're all supposed to know now that are right because the culture says that they're right, that we know now are right. But the word of God says that those things are wrong. And in that moment, after they went on this long list of why they wanted to have their kids grow up with these morals, but they didn't want to necessarily have them be radical, I felt this tension in my heart. Am I going to say something? <laughs> or am I going to just be comfortable, not try to offend anybody? Or am I going to gently speak truth? And I confess that in that moment, I punted. I didn't say something. But as we continued to talk, the spirit of the Lord grew this conviction in my heart. And finally, as a pastor, this is humiliating for me to even tell you this. It took me the entire two-hour session at the end to finally get the courage in my life to stand up for that which I stand up for every Sunday and do this. And I said to them, here, can I challenge you for a second? Not only would it be stupid for you to come into my office and get counsel from me if you're not willing to say that Jesus is Lord, but you should get as far away from the church as possible if Jesus isn't who he says he is. But if he is, then you have no other choice but to bend your knee and worship him as if he is Lord of your life. And that was so hard for me. It was so much more hard for me that I... Like, I'm embarrassed to tell you how hard for you, how that hard that was. Because I'm a people pleaser. I don't want to be rejected. And in that moment, I was so tempted to just conform to the world, to punt on Jesus. But by God's grace, he gave me the strength to speak truth in their lives. So I said, you guys don't have to come back, but I want you to know, this is where I stand. I bet my life on this book. And if you come back, I want you to do a favor for me. Just read the Gospels. Look at who Jesus is and make that choice for yourself. But don't make that choice before you see who he says he is. Guys, we're put in positions all the time. And, and, and we fail often. 
Will we reject Jesus or will we reject the things that aren't of Jesus? And I, I want us to come back to the story now. Because as our story continues, Herodias finally gets her opportunity to off John, and so she crafts a plan. And in case you didn't think your family dynamics were not that bad, he sends his niece's daughter, who's now his stepdaughter, to come in before all of his homies and do a little dance and strip before everyone. And this so pleases Herod in his messed up sexual state that he promises her whatever she wants and her knowing her mom's disdain for John walks out of that room and says, mom, what do you want me to do? And her mom says, I want Herod's head. And in case you think Salome, the daughter, was pure, she adds a little twist of her own and she says, not only do I want Herod's head, but I want it on a platter. But this is where the story gets tragic because look at verse 26. It says that Herod is deeply distressed. And one of the only other times that that word in the Greek is used is when Jesus is sweating drops of blood in the garden before his crucifixion. Herod is in intense anguish He doesn't want to kill John. He actually likes John. But to save face so that people would like him, to save his world, he kills John. And this is the tragedy of the story because if Herod had actually repented, there was forgiveness waiting for him on the other side. But he didn't. Instead, he killed what had turned into his friend, even though he was his prisoner, because he wanted to not be looked down upon by those at his party. Herod flirts with the truth, but he never has the guts or the courage to actually repent and turn to Jesus. And this is where it really hits me, because how many times do we conform because we also want to be liked? We don't want to be looked down upon. And do you know that Herod actually meets Jesus? Face to face, at the end of Mark's gospel, Herod and Jesus will be face to face and Herod is completely disinterested. Guys, this story is a, about the love story that God has for guys even like Herod. He sends him John. He even uses the imprisonment of John for John to have these conversations with Herod every single day. God is giving Herod an opportunity over and over and over again. Repent, 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 turn. And then he even meets Jesus face to face at the end of the gospel. God loves Herod. He's pursuing Herod. And that's where I realized the line between John and Herod runs right down the center of the human heart. So let me ask you a question. Why are you in church this morning? Do you know that you can be in proximity to Jesus and never actually give your life to him? You can be around good people. You can be around church. You can go to Bible studies. But just being around it, listening to it, this is the real tragedy of Herod. In fact, I love this quote from Pastor Rod Van Salkema. He says, until we have our, our lives and hearts changed, Herod's tragedy is our tragedy. Why? Because it demands a response. It's not enough just to be hearers of the word, but Jesus says we need to be doers of the word. And that asks me, that leads me to my second question. What kingdom are you living for? Some of us in this room, we're thinking, well, why would I want John's life? 
I want Herod's life. I want power. I want luxury. I want prestige. And it's never been more accessible. We have that bombarding us in our pockets every day. But if we're honest with ourselves, that always leads to destruction. Because what becomes Herod's legacy? In the words of Herod, Herod gained the whole world and yet he forfeited his soul. And as we close, I want us to think about this. But Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Excuse me, wow. (laughs) And how do you know which kingdom you serve? By looking at Herod. What are the things that you fear in your life? What are your deepest fears? Think about your deepest fears for just a second and I bet you, you will find what kingdom you serve. What do you fear in life? What is your greatest fear? Because Herod's fear was losing face at a cocktail party and it cost John his life. But John fears God and fearing God is the point of being a believer. In fact, Jesus says this. He says, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can cast their soul into hell. Is that me? Is that us? I love this quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else, whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. And some of us this morning, we're discouraged. We look at the world and we're like, this is just chaotic. But I also want to encourage you with this, that Jesus promises that it will feel like that sometimes for us. In fact, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. But what's his consolation? But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And that's why Paul says this in Philippians 1. Look at this. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then... Whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated by the way of your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but you are going to be saved even by God himself. Here's the key. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting Christ, but the privilege of suffering for him. We're in the struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past and you know that I am still in the midst of it. And those verses are why this whole story right there is tragic for John the Baptist. Because John lost his head but he walked in the newness of life with Christ. And by contrast, Herod kept his head, his reputation, his prestige, and he lost God. And before you get super discouraged this morning and go, man, I've blown it. There's been times where I have not stood up for my convictions. I have not stood up and allowed myself to be rejected. That's okay. You're not alone. Every disciple of Jesus will find themselves in one of those positions at some point in their life. But that's where we have the gift of repentance, of turning and saying, I'm done with that. In fact, one of the most famous examples is the disciple named Peter. I don't know if you know about Peter, but he was a fisherman. He was in the inner three, the closest three disciples to the heart of Jesus. And when it came for 
the moment of Peter's life, the climax of everything that he had been working for as a disciple of Jesus, you know what? He didn't punt once, he didn't punt twice, but he punted three times. And he said, I don't know that man. On the night of Jesus's torture and crucifixion. Peter said, I don't want to be rejected. And he rejected Jesus. And does Jesus reject Peter? No. Instead, he cooks him a warm breakfast and he asks him three times, do you love me? And then after he asks him, do you love me? He says, then show me and feed my sheep. That's the gift of repentance. We're not perfect. We're gonna blow it sometimes. If you're a Christian, this message is not a message of judgment because just as it was for Peter, our judgment was on that cross 2,000 years ago if you put your faith in Jesus. There is nothing to fear but fear God alone. But you gotta turn. You gotta repent. So here's the bad news. Be prepared to be rejected if you follow the rejected king. But here's the good news is that Jesus was rejected totally for you and for me so that you could be absolutely positive that because of his rejection that he will welcome you with open arms, with all of his love, in all of your imperfections. And he, like he did with Herod, he comes to us over and over and over again. He says, I love you. I love you. I love you. Will you worship me? Let's run to him this morning. He won't turn away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is heavy in our hearts. We are conflicted and convicted with all the ways that we fall so short of your glory, God, and yet you give us grace. You give us your mercy. You give us your love. So as we continue to worship, Lord, I pray that people in this room, if they've put their faith in you, would not hear this as condemnation, but as conviction that we would put our life on the line for you, Jesus, because you put our life, your life, on the line for us. You do not reject us. You welcome us in. And you tell us that it is a privilege to identify with your sufferings. Lord, as we continue in the series, I pray that we are refined by your truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encouraged you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.